Hey, just a 30 second announcement before today's episode for a deal you're not gonna wanna miss. Now, whether you're a coach or an administrator, you want to have not just the people on your staff, but the people around you bought into transformational leadership. And it is challenging. It is challenging to get people aligned in the vision, values, and behaviors necessary for strengthening relationships and improving performance. And one of the most effective and inexpensive ways of starting to get alignment is through a book study or reading. My book, Calling Up, is going to be on an exclusive and special sale for one week only starting Thursday, July 11th at midnight, and it's lasting until Wednesday, July 17th. You can get Calling Up for only $9.25 when you buy a box. That's 27 signed copies, and they're only $250. You're gonna save over $250 when you buy this box. And every additional copy after that 27 is only $9.25 as well. This summer special is one week only. Now, in just a few seconds, you or your organization can get this very special deal via credit card or check. All you need to do is click the Calling Up Summer Special link at the top of the episode details. You're not going to want to miss out on this opportunity. The coaches in your organization are going to be thanking you for bringing them this book. Oh, Chris, you brought something else up in your article that was really intriguing to me about developing cultural norms. And you, you talked about how that dialogue during the season, that those norms start to emerge on your teams. Um, and I'm curious about that because oftentimes I think we think that our values and the, our principles and you know our purpose as a program like is rock solid year in and year out. And yet you kind of alluded to and didn't really explain in very much depth in the article, which I wanna ask you about it. Do your norms change year in and year out depending on your team? Do they develop differently? Do you give sort of space for the uniqueness of the group to, to come about, or are your norms tied into something that is an anchor every single season? Well, I think it's both. I think there are some anchors, right? If we said, we just took a practice culture. I mean, hard work's gotta be a part of that. But how do you define hard work? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we can all say these words, but do you actually define what that means for your players? Like hard work in particular is like, okay, are we running lanes full speed? Are we, uh, you know, is everyone tagging on a defensive rebound? You know, there's these specific examples instead of using these generic words that your players have to connect to. And then that helps in terms of those things that you said in terms of cultural norms on the court. But then there's also things like how much my team communicates in practice. Like I've had teams that really communicate well in practice and then I have some teams that it's only two or three guys communicating in practice. And it used to really hang me up as a coach when I was young. Oh. I can't believe we're not talking. Well, then I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. Let me see. Does this impact how we play or not? And it's like, is that something that's like something that always has to be present for us to be good or, or does it not? And, and I found it didn't like, I had some really good teams that had a bunch of really quiet dudes on it, but you know what? They always were in the right place and they always supported each other but they supported each other in a completely different way than completely always being vocal. And there's things like that that I think are culturally different for each team that, that that kind of evolves. And I hope that makes sense in terms of that, like just those two examples, you know, that one is there all the time I feel or needs to be. And then the other one, I'm like, uh, it doesn't need to be as much. So it's like kind of each team has its unique cultural norm to that. This week on the podcast, JP and I are going to wrestle with this question that came out of our conversation with Chris Oliver does having a predetermined set of values best serve your team? 
Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. And every week in 30 minutes or less, we're giving you transformational leadership tools and strategies. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive On Challenge, which provides mentorship for coaches to help them grow as a coach and build their culture. You can learn more at thriveonchallenge.com. You're listening to episode 94, Why Your Team's Values Can Change Year to year. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that we send out the coaching notes PDF for each episode every Thursday in our newsletter. Well, new listeners have been emailing and asking me for the podcast notes on uh, previous episodes. So we've decided to now include uh, a link in the newsletter to the majority of the coaching notes uh, from previous episodes of the podcast. All right. You can subscribe uh, with the link in the episode details of this podcast or by going to thriveonchallenge.com. Now, before Nate and I get into our conversation today, we also just want to once again thank Chris Oliver from B-Ball Immersion uh, for coming on last week's episode and for sharing part of our conversation in this week's episode. He's an absolute pro at what he does, so I highly suggest uh, you check him out at basketballimmersion.com and follow him on Twitter at B-Ball immersion. Thanks again, Chris. Well, JP, last week in our conversation with Chris Oliver, we talked a lot about different communication strategies that you can use with your team to build your team culture. But the article that that conversation was based on had kind of this throwaway sentence at the end that really grabbed my attention that we're going to dig into in a lot more detail here this week. And Chris kind of referred to it in the opener here, but the sentence was this, this is part of forming cultural norms. And that seems really innocuous when you hear about it, but it really made me think about this because what's implied in that sentence is that these communication strategies will help you form cultural norms, is that your cultural norms may change year in and year out. And I think that as coaches, sometimes we are faced with a temptation of looking back at last season or previous seasons and saying, I had this recipe that we used with this team last year that created this great culture. And so I go into this upcoming season and I just follow the same recipe and assume that I'm going to get the same results. I'm going to generate the same kind of culture by doing what I did with past teams. And Chris really made me think about that, that maybe we don't need to do that year in and year out, that maybe we need to give our individual teams more space to be able to create their own cultural norms. Yeah, Nate, and I was so guilty of that, I think, in one big season, which was when I actually moved from Ireland to Tennessee, and I said, I am going to try to build my team's culture the exact same way I did over there, and it failed miserably at first. But I also think we fall into this habit as coaches where we we try to take other people's recipes. Oh, what did Brad Stevens do at Butler? Let's try to replicate the Butler way, and I want that to become my my team's kind of recipe for success and i think that there's value in obviously taking from them and learning from them but i think trying to replicate what other what we've done in the past to replicate other coaches kind of recipes for their culture um fail to take into account our ingredients of what we have that season And, and i was definitely guilty of that in the past well one of the things that changes year in and year out you know Oftentimes we think, well, the roster is going to turn over. Your seniors are going to be gone. Your freshmen are going to come in. Your JV players are moving up to varsity. And so it's natural to think that we're mixing kind of a different group of personalities here. But, 
you know, sometimes there are seasons where you bring everybody back. I mean, we're looking at coming into this next year having just one senior graduated from last year. And I have to realize that even though we, quote unquote, bring everyone back, they're not coming back the same in November as they left in February. There's eight months in between there where those kids are they're growing, they're maturing. Hopefully they're improving as players. They're growing as leaders. They're having different life experiences during that time. And so for me to just assume, well, I know what we've got coming back and, you know, I know how they're going to blend together and what our culture is going to be like, maybe misses an opportunity for helping that group to really form an even stronger identity based on who they are now, as opposed to just who they were then at the end of last year. So Nate, when I came from Ireland to Tennessee, one of the first things I did was I had this very long detailed program identity and handbook that I had created. And when I, I tried to share that with my staff, I tried to share that with my players, I tried to share it with the parents, and I wanted to get them to buy into that. And I think there's a problem in that approach. And I see it all often too, because when I work with coaches, often I ask, you know, what's material stuff have you created for your program? And a lot of coaches out there have that program handbook, or they got that page where it's like, these are our core values, these are the pillars of our program here. And that can be problematic when we're trying to constantly get our players and other people to buy in to our vision and values or an identity. And the reason that's problematic is just because it's been our vision. It's what we see, and we're just trying to constantly sell them on that. And I think if we can go in there, and there's some ways that obviously you're really good at of making sure that it becomes their vision. We need to meet them where they're at, right? I, I, when I'm hearing you talk about this, I keep thinking about Jack Easterby's phrase, accountability is just accounting for their ability. You've got to identify where people are at. You can't just come in with standards and visions and values and just self-impose them on that because people will fight that all the time. And so I think there's so much value uh, in your approach, which is often for us as coaches though, very scary. JP, I think one of the things that we take pride in as coaches is knowing who we want our teams to be. In other words, somebody comes over and they ask, you know, well, what's your program all about? Or, you know, what, what's your team all about? Or who are you as a team? We love to be able to say the Linmar way, we are all about love and effort, man. We're going to go as hard as we can. We're going to compete till the end. And we're going to care about each other. And like, you know, it's all over our shirts and it's all over all of our stuff. And like as coaches, we take a lot of pride in having that identity. I mean, one of the things that's challenging with that is I make that determination of this is who we are before I've worked with my team. In other words, we're in June right now. Our season doesn't start until November. You know, I don't know for sure who we're going to be. And one of the most freeing things for me as a coach that has really allowed my teams year in and year out to be whoever they are is when people ask me that question, well, what are you guys all about? Who are you guys going to be? Whatever. I just say, I don't know yet. I don't know who we are. I don't know who we're going to be. And the first time I really discovered this was uh, 2015 when I was at Springville. We had a pretty good team coming back, but the year before we kind of underachieved. We were a game under 500 and it was a really trying season for me because I was so hung up on our wins and losses and I felt like we should have been better. And I just carried a lot of this emotional baggage through the year because we weren't as competitive or winning as many games as I thought we would have going into the year. And so one of the changes that I decided to make the following year, we had some talent coming up and there were some expectations that we were going to be even better, is that I thought, you know what, we're not going to talk about outcomes anymore at all. We're not going to set any goals. We're not going to 
define our season by a conference finish or anything like that. And but that also left a question of then what are we going to do? Like what are we going to focus on? You know, and how are we going to find direction as a team? So I sort of took this shot in the dark in picking a theme for the year. And our theme was actually a phrase from an old Jars of Clay song. And the, the phrase was turning something normal into something beautiful. And the idea was instead of worrying about winning all these games, it's like if we could figure out how to take this normal game of basketball and make it beautiful and figure out what does beautiful basketball look like and try to do that, number one, it would be more fun, it would be more attractive, and it would give us something that was under our control and not let us get up, you know, hung up on all of the outcomes. So one of the first questions that we had to wrestle with here was what does beautiful basketball look like? Now, again, what's hard for coaches is I have an answer in my head of what beautiful basketball looks like to me, okay? I think it's effort. I think it's getting on the floor. I think it's sharing the ball. I think it's making the extra pass. I mean, I think that those things that draw a team together make the game more appealing and more attractive, not only to play, but to watch. But the challenge wasn't for me just to unload my list on the team and say, well, here it is. If we do these things, then we're going to be beautiful. It was how can I get my team to discover that for themselves? So one of the things that we did in our, one of our early mental health days was we watched a bunch of clips from the Spurs the year that they dominated the Heat in the finals. And, you know, they were showing those exact things that I that I had in my mind. But rather than me tell them, it was sort of allowing them to experience visually the same things. And then they started to determine and describe what is it that made that kind of basketball so so attractive and so appealing. And so as we built this list, then, of course, we challenged ourselves, well, can we do those things when we play? And obviously the answer was yes, right? So as we went through the year, not only were we working from this list of behaviors that the kids came up with watching the Spurs, but I was also trying to move away from this outcome-oriented experience, right? And so one of the places that that was a challenge for me was in my pregame talks. So rather than talk about if we do this, this, and this, we're going to win, we started focusing on, yeah, we had keys to the game and there were certain things that we needed to do to try to be competitive. But as we went through the year, my speech always ended the same way. I put the marker down on the whiteboard after going through the three keys to the game. And I would say, no matter what happens in the game, we're going to go out and we're going to play hard and we're going to care about each other. We're going to celebrate each other. We're going to support each other. And I kept coming up with all these different verbs to describe how we wanted to be as team as teammates. And about January, I, I realized that what I was trying to do here was to describe love. I was trying to describe we're going to go out, we're going to play hard, and we're going to love each other. I just wasn't sure if I could use the word if they were going to be ready for it. But by two-thirds of the way through the year, it just fell out of my mouth. And so the end speech was, no matter what, we're going to play hard, we're going to love each other, and we're just going to go do what we do, right? We're going to go try to play beautiful basketball. But that phrase, do what we do, sort of described that. And that became like the foundation for that team for the rest of the year. It just always came back to play hard, love each other, do what we do. Now what's so important though, Nate, I think for coaches to understand is that you weren't sitting there controlling everything, right? It wasn't this, you, you didn't script that out during that season, but you weren't standing back completely hands off, just going up. Oh, I hope they figured it out. I hope this team identity comes together. You actually did what I think Chris Oliver talked about, which is, 
you helped to shape that, right? You, you, you were working behind the scenes. You were constantly, and I think this is kind of the, the art of coaching, right? There's no, like, we, we want it to be a science, and so often we want that controlled environment, but so often I think it's this is the art of coaching is just being being there and help working to shape that, that, that culture and that team identity and seeing how they react to certain things that you throw, throw their way. You know, I've seen coaches out there, you know, they really want to imprint a message for their team that they could put their team around, um, around competing or about, uh, you know, things like love and effort like that. They might hear it on your, on the podcast and you share it and they try to share that and they want that message to be their team's message. But the team, yeah, they might like that. Maybe they understand it, but they don't really resonate with them or their story. And, and I think that that's okay. I think sometimes we just got to be prepared to keep exploring and keep trying to figure out with our team, right, as we're going through that process to kind of see what they can, what they can kind of hold on to. Well, I think you're right on there, JP. And I think this is really the challenge that we're trying to get coaches just to think a little bit about this week is, I can say love and effort on the podcast. Coaches out there can hear it and think, oh, that sounds awesome. I should try it with my team. And it doesn't resonate with their story exactly like you said. But what's really interesting is I can say play hard, love each other, and do what we do with mostly the same team returning in 2016. And yet it felt completely different because that team needed a different manifestation of what love meant. And let me tell you more of that story so that that makes sense. So when we first started talking about love, we really were talking about celebrating each other, supporting each other, and really just the enjoyment of playing together. Like we had really good relationships on the team. Didn't it feel great to be together and to play this fun game? Yeah, this feels really great. That's what love was. It was being fun, being together. When we went into 2016, we only graduated two seniors. We had this really talented freshman class that was becoming sophomores now. We were preseason number one, picked to win the whole thing. And so in a lot of ways, that phrase, play hard, love each other, and do what we do, really served us well because it grounded us. It kept us away from, you know, the idea of getting caught up in all these expectations and all the pressure and all that sort of thing. But the pressure and the expectations also created a different need for that team. And so one of the ways, one of the things that we struggled with during the year was our mistake response because it felt like every failure weighed more. You know, in 2015, We were kind of a Cinderella team, and if we messed up, like, well, wow, I can't believe we're here. Let's just keep playing. In 2016, it was like, oh, well, we're supposed to be here. We're supposed to keep playing because we're supposed to be number one. So if we messed up, the weight of that failure, it was just a lot heavier to carry. And so when we started talking about love and what love meant, what that team needed love to mean was how do we respond in a supportive way when we're vulnerable after making a mistake. And so we spent so much time, and I know we've told a lot of these stories on the podcast before, on our mistake response as teammates one to another. So it wasn't that the the value of love changed. It was still a foundational principle for our program. And honestly, any team that I ever coach, it's probably never going to change. But what it looked like was a lot different, even for the same group of kids, because the context of that second year in 2016 was so different We had to have a different manifestation of love to meet that team where they were and to meet the needs that they had. Yeah, I I just think about one year I I had the the acronym family and I chose that, which, you know, stood for forget about me, I love you. And I decided I'm going to drill this into my team. And if I do and if I never stop talking about it, eventually they're going to get it, they're going to buy into it and they're going to start loving each other. And 
the team really never resonated with that message and they completely co- completely kind of rejected it and it wasn't until later in the year that I realized that's that wasn't what they needed right at that stage there what they really were struggling with was this idea around coming in every day and competing and not comparing themselves to other teams in our school and comparing themselves to other teams out there just based on the arc of the season and some things that had happened that I could never have predicted as, as a coach. And so that became one of our themes that year was just to compete, don't compare. And it resonated with them. They bought into that. Um, but it kind of happened in a kind of an organic way. It's just a, just a side conversation that I had had with them. And I had heard, of, heard that phrase from, from Jamie Gilbert. And he had been you know encouraging me to use that as well within my own coaching. And I shared it with them. And, and they kind of resonated with that. And so I capitalized on that. And so I think this is where I see so often coaches go wrong is they, they've got that document, they want to share it, or they put something up on the t-shirt, they throw it up on the wall, and they just try to drive it into their players. But what you just talked about there and shared is being more attentive to the team's needs. And that, that is obviously challenging. I think a lot of coaches struggle with giving up that amount of control, though. Well, and I think there's two big obstacles to giving your team a little bit more freedom to figure out who they are and what they need and what maybe your values, those words may not change, but what they look like might change team to team. And I think number one, you just mentioned right there, it's scary. It's scary for a coach to go into a season and say, I don't know who we are because it's our job to know who we are, right? And so there's just part of it that just feels like, well, I'm not, if I say that as a coach, it's sort of like saying, you know, who's your leading scorer going to be this year? And you're like, I don't know. People think that's a cop-out and people think that you're just sandbagging or whatever. But in reality, you may not know. And it's probably better sometimes for us not to know to allow their space for the identity of that team and those kids where they are at that time to emerge rather than to confine the team behind some artificial boundaries because you're guessing at who you think they are or who you want them to be. And I think the other difficult part of this is that, again, you don't necessarily know when your team is going to come together and figure out who they are, right? Because, again, it's not really about you being able to describe your culture and the experience that your kids are going to have. It's for them to be able to experience it on a daily basis. Because here's the thing about great culture. If you study how cultures develop, and I don't care if you're talking about sports or organizations or business or whatever, you'll hear kind of these four stages, right, that teams form And people come together for the first time, right? I think about our upcoming season. Our first day of practice is the first time that all 40 of our players will be in the room at the same time in history, right? So they have formed. And then at some point, we're going to start to try to figure out our roles and we're going to try to figure out who we are and we're going to try to figure out, you know, what our expectations are for practice. And at some point, somebody's going to violate some of those expectations and we're going to storm, right? They're either not going to accept their role or they're not going to show up on time or they're not going to conform to the offense or whatever it is. And so there's going to be some conflict there, right? And so in the point of conflict, how you come through that really is where your norms are established. And our norms are just, again, the expectations of this is who we're going to be. And so in a practice, if a player doesn't hustle after a loose ball, there's a storm, right? And there's a moment there where we have to decide is that who we're going to be or is that not us you know and we'll confront our team with that like if it does that effort right there we're all about love and effort is that what effort is going to look like 
you know, and so there's a little bit of a storm, but we're using that storm to, again, try to establish what our norms are going to be. And that can be different from team to team because your storms are going to be different from team to team. And the norms that come out of them are going to be different from team to team. And the research would say that until a team has come together, they've had some expectations, somebody's violated those expectations, and as a result, your norms have formed, you can't ultimately achieve your highest level of performance. And I think what Chris is getting back to and what we talked about in the prologue was that that's going to be different from team to team, but you have to let them go through that process, and sometimes that takes time. And not only does it take time, but as a coach, you have to have patience, and you have to have the, the ability to ask the right questions to get your team to reflect on the question of, who are we? Who are we becoming? Who do we want to be? And for us, I mean, I remember in December, one of our Christmas break practices, we stopped practice the last 15 minutes, went to a whiteboard, and we just said, who are we? Like, we've been doing this for two months now, so who are we? How would you describe our team? And that was a really important point where our norms started to solidify because they were up on the board and people would make suggestions and they would kind of nod. And they'd be like, yeah, that, that is who we are. We feel good about being a team that's gritty, being a team that's competitive, whatever those adjectives might be. Um, but again, we had to be patient for that time to develop and we had to be intentional about guiding our players through questions that would get them to reflect on who they are so that they could perform at their best. And you hit on a very important question there, Nate, which I think when you're hitting those storms, when you're going through that conflict, I think one of the most powerful things you can ask a player or even your team is, is that, is that who we want to be? Is that who you want to be as a player, as a person? Right? And just asking them to reflect on, on, on those moments there. Or who do we want to be on the other end of this? Right? You go through a series of four losses. What do we want our story to be this year? Do we want it to, you know, to be that we cave in to, to this and we, we crumble like so many other teams out there? Or do we want this to be kind of a turning point and just using those type of questions to reflect on and to kind of come up with an identity can be really helpful. JP, I think that brings us kind of even back full circle here to, to maybe the foundational piece of this is you have to know your team. You have to know where they are. You have to know who they are to be able to ask the right questions at the right time. You, you can't just go into a season and say, well, this is a varsity team. So they should be able to do these things. They should carry themselves in this way. This is how they should practice. And then when they come out, they don't work as hard as you think they should because they're varsity players or they, they don't know what you think they should because they're at the varsity level. And as coaches, we waste so much time and so much energy complaining when we think a player should be on step five. And we watch them in practice and they're only on step two. And that could be their work ethic. That could be how they interact with teammates. That could be their game itself. Instead of focusing on the gap of where we think they should be because they're a varsity player, we need to just accept them where they are and figure out how to help them take the next step. Look, if you're watching your practice and you think these kids aren't working hard, they may not understand what hard work looks like. And rather than just complain about that, you need to invest that energy in figuring out the best way to teach them what hard work should look like where they're at and they may not get to step five by the end of the year but if you can get them to step three or step four like that's our job right is to meet our kids where they're at to give them an idea of where they want to go and who they want to be and help them to take the next step to get there 
Well, Nate, I, I think I'd conclude today's episode with this. I think many of us as leaders, we need to have a paradigm shift uh, if we want to become a more effective leader. I think traditionally, we see it as our job as the leader to create the vision, to define the values of our team, and then get players to buy in. And what we end up doing is just selling. All right, we just end up selling. And more often than not, they're gonna reject what we try to sell. What we're suggesting in this episode is to use powerful questions to get them to reflect and to empower them to identify their vision, their values, and what that looks like based upon where they are at. Now, hopefully today we've given you a bit of an idea of what those questions and what that process looks like. But the reality is this, it's different for every leader every year. And it's why at Thrive on Challenge, we are so passionate about mentorship. And it's the reason the mentorship program not only has 100% satisfaction, but over 90% of our coaches and leaders are remaining in the program. Nate's excited to be working with a few more coaches coming this August. And if you'd like to discuss with him or myself how mentorship can help you shape your team's identity, implement systems to build your culture, and get some much needed support on your journey, then you should schedule a free mentorship call with Nate or I today. There's links in the details of this episode. Uh, also, you can go to thriveonchallenge.com to schedule that free call today.